Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we can not only sing those words, but know them to be true. Lord, we have a testimony, a song to sing, which we know, Lord, that your Spirit has come to dwell within us and we are the children of God. Lord, we do pray that you would open our eyes more to the glory that is ahead of us, that we might be more lost in your love. Lord, we know that without your love, we would not be here tonight. Before the dawn of time, you set your affection upon us, but Lord, not merely an affection that says, I love you, but Lord, an active affection. Lord, it was love that drew salvation's plan and love that brought it to man. Lord, we thank you. It's a love that is unlike anything we can know of ourselves in this world. Lord, your love does not treat us as we deserve, but has chosen to take everything we deserve, Lord, of your anger and your wrath against our sin and all that sin has done to us, and placed it upon yourself and your Son. Lord, you have loved us with a love that is not repeatable in this world. Lord, it's impossible for anyone to repeat what you have done, or to express more greatly than you have already done the love of yourself. We see on the cross, Lord, an amazing love. Lord, that loved us so much that you did not withhold your own Son, but freely gave him up for us all. Lord, how amazing is this love. And yet, Lord, this is but a glimpse of it for us in this world. Lord, you have an eternity to show us of your love, where we will receive forever what we do not deserve, but by grace and the plan of God's love, we shall receive the bounty of your abundance forever and ever and ever. Lord, it is amazing to think of that. Lord, as we pray to you tonight, we pray to one who wants to hear us because he loves us one who cares about every detail of our lives, to number the hairs on our head, to watch over every step, to plan them all out, to careful about our words when they come, before they come out. You know them all together. Lord, you love us with an amazing love. Lord, we are conscious tonight there are so many people in this world who need someone to love them. And yet the last person in the world they think does love them is you. Lord, that you would have mercy upon those around us tonight, upon family members who do not think that God loves them, on friends and neighbors to whom we would share the gospel. Lord, you would yet open the eyes of the blind that they may see the wonders of your love. Lord, they have songs that they sing, but Lord, they are not without, with any tune that heaven recognizes. Lord, that they would have a new song put within their mouths, even praise unto their God. Thank you, Lord, that we can praise you tonight. Lord, we come to worship you, not only for our praying, but, Lord, to give attention to your word. Lord, that we may hear what God has to say to us through that living word. And, Lord, we come, Lord, before you later on to pray, because, Lord, we cannot meet the needs of this world. But, Lord, we know that you do. Lord, we thank you again for every good and perfect gift that's come from your hand today, towards us, those things for which we asked and those things, Lord, which we never considered we needed, but you have provided anyway. Oh, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read the words of Romans chapter 6, the opening verses there. 
Romans 6 and verses 1 to 4. The Apostle Paul writes here, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were baptized with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Amen. Lord bless his word. We looked over these past weeks at chapter 5. And in the midst of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul has written something to us of the grace that abounded and the reconciliation we've experienced. Here in Romans 6, he builds on this and wants to ask now another question. Shall we continue in sin that that grace may abound? In chapter 5, we have found how that grace has abounded. We were reconciled to God with a free gift of reconciliation. We didn't deserve it or earn it. It came through Christ. When he was placed on the cross, God intended to unite us to himself, and we received that as a gift. That gift has given us life, not death. We enter the world of death, but we have been given new life, and we continue to live. And through that, we have been justified with God. We have been given the free gift of justification with reconciliation. We are just as if we had never sinned in God's sight. And we possess from God his righteousness that puts us out of reach of all condemnation. Further, God has provided for us, as Paul writes in Romans 5, an abundance of grace that reigns over sin. So sin is conquered even before it is committed through the grace of God. In the light of these wonderful truths that are true of every Christian, the Apostle Paul now enters into Romans 6 as we have it divided for us and says, what shall we say to all this? God has done these wonderful things for us, has made us so free, brought us to life, justified us, reconciled us to himself in all the fullness of that, and poured an abundance of grace. What shall we say to this in our lives? This chapter, Paul is going to answer the question, what kind of life should we live in response to the gift of this complete reconciliation from God? begins in this opening verse with a common question. Now, to give us the background here, we have to remember Paul is writing this letter to the Romans to a church he has never visited. Although he has desired to do so, he says in Romans 1 and verse 13, Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. Because Paul had not been there, this meant that he was not aware of the specific matters that needed to be addressed, as he was in other churches to which he wrote. The Corinthian church, of course, being one of the prime examples of that, which Paul pointed out many things that he knew needed to be dealt with. 
We could not say that of the Roman church. However, Paul, as he had traveled around various churches and various places, had seen common issues. And one of those brought about this common question that he's going to address here. How Christians should live their lives as reconciled people. Having described the Christian as one given an untouchable life with God, completely freed from death's grip and sin's impact now and forever, which meant that when the Christian sinned, they could not be separated from the love of God because of the abundance of God's grace that covered all their sin. In Romans 6 and verse 1, Paul appears to know some people who say they understand this truth, identify themselves as Christians, and continue to sin, deliberately living their lives in the pattern and practice of sin. We have an illustration in the UK that, that helps us, at least I think it's getting a bit dated now because this term has fallen out of use because we've gone many steps beyond this stage of sin within our land. We used to have the phrase, living in sin. Men and women would choose, as a couple, that they were not going to get married. But they were instead going to live together without getting married. And that was identified in this country at one point as living in sin. They displayed their desire to enjoy the relationship of marriage in a sinful manner. Namely, without recognition of marriage as God's created and exclusive provision for a man and woman coming together. So they lived in sin, denying what God had chosen, that God had appointed this, that this was the means that was to be put in place. And we lived in a society, and we live in a society that still marks marriage and the significance of it between a man and a woman, although general terms, that's gone a lot broader in these days to places where the Bible does not go. That was what living in sin was. This helps us to understand then what Paul means when he says that they continue to sin to live in it. It means that a person chooses to disregard or exclude God's access to every area of their lives. They want all the benefits and blessings of God's reconciliation without the interference of God in every area of their lives. They want to live in sin. They want all the blessings of what it is to be reconciled to God, to be considered by God just as if they'd never sinned, to have the abundance of his grace, to know what it is to be justified, but they want to continue to live in a pattern of life that ignores God's access to it at any point or interference in how they should live. And as an excuse for those actions, Paul identifies the abundance of God's grace. Paul may well have heard people as he writes these things down and have heard of people saying things like this when they justified their actions to fellow believers or people in the church. He may have said, Well, when we sin, we are causing God's grace to abound. As if God's grace could only abound when they sinned abundantly. 
So the more they sinned, the more the grace of God would abound. Thus Paul says these words. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? That's where he begins with verse 1. He answers the question very bluntly in verse 2. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Paul gives this blunt response. It's translated in various ways in uh, translations. Here, certainly not. In another, it says, by no means. Absolutely not in another place. Whatever way you take it, there is no way of escaping what Paul means. There is no way the Christian should continue to sin in the light of their relation to God through reconciliation. Now, Paul's going to expand on that blunt answer throughout the chapter, but he begins in these verses giving, first of all, from verse 2, Paul states that a true Christian is dead to sin. Therefore, they are not capable of living in it any longer. Paul is not saying that Christians don't sin. He is saying that Christians do not live in a pattern of sinfulness as they did before. It is not their aim. It is not their life. There is something that has radically changed about them as they are now alive and were once dead, as he stated in the previous chapter. Paul explains this truth as something which Christians had seen publicly demonstrated in verse 3. Paul knew that those in the church would be familiar with baptism. They had either partaken in it, or else they had witnessed others partake in it. For Paul himself, he was not a baptizer. He baptized very few people in his ministry. He was not sent forth to baptize. But baptism was a practice within the early church. And that, according to the pattern that was carried out by John the Baptist and then carried through into the baptism that was applied with Christ, for John preached a baptism of repentance, Jesus was able to give the baptism the true meaning with identification in his person with his death and his resurrection. But if they believed that they could keep on sinning and living in sin, Paul identified, a person may have sat in church and witnessed these things and not known the significance of its identification with Christ. Those who were baptized were baptized into the death of Jesus. Paul clarifies this identification in the fourth verse. In baptism, they signified their burial with Jesus into his death, following him through baptism's water to come up identifying themselves with Jesus' resurrection from the dead by the glory of the Father. Now, this clearly indicates what kind of baptism Paul has in mind. He has in mind the baptism of immersion where a person is plunged into water and lifted up again. There is a physical connection to their actions, to the actions of Christ dying and rising. Paul sees this in their life. He looks then at the person going into the water. Sin was the pattern of their past. But as they enter into the water, they identify that Christ died for their sins and died to be victorious over death. So Jesus was the pattern of their present. 
Sin was the pattern of their past lives, but that's dead. Jesus is the pattern of their present lives. The sin of their past was dead. That's what reconciliation does, isn't it? It reconciles us to God as if we never sinned. It cleanses us of all our past sin and puts us in relation to God where sin in the present cannot cling to us or hold to us. We are changed and transformed. So we are alive now in Christ, and as a result, we should be walking in newness of that life. Christ rose again from the dead. There are significant differences between the manner of life he lived from that time forward and the purpose of that life as he was looking forward to being with the Father than that which preceded as he led towards the cross. Thus with the Christian. The life that we lived before was focused on ourselves and focused on getting what we could from life. Our life now is to be focused on where Jesus is and the hope of the glory that is ahead. And this is all seen in the link with baptism. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul uses words there that describe how a person would be baptized in some settings. An individual was thought to come to maybe a river, and they would take off all of their clothes on one side of the river. They would go through the water, they would be baptized, and they would not come out on the same side, they would come out on the other side, and there they would put on a fresh set of clothes, entirely new, signifying that the old man was dead and the new man was alive. How can we continue to sin if the person who has been buried with Christ is dead? We can't, because Christ has been raised in us. Certainly not a strong word, but a well-illustrated word in Paul's words. So what should we say to this? Let's have an exhortation out of it. For sin does not make grace abound. That's important. It was not sin that made grace abound. It is God that makes grace abound. Grace flows from God, not from sin. And grace flows from God to sinners. You cannot make your sin a servant of God. There is nothing you can do to justify your sin that will make it a servant of God. Not one thing. And we are great self-justifiers. We are wonderful self-justifiers. We can justify why we should buy this piece of food instead of that piece of food. We can justify why we should have this hobby instead of that hobby. We can justify why we should attend this church and not that church, or why we should do this or that. We are always justifying ourselves. And we are good at trying to justify our sin. But you cannot justify your sin as a servant of God. But you can make yourself a servant of God. Paul's going to come to that in chapter 12 and verses 1 to 2. We should give our bodies as living sacrifices before God. It begins often for us to understand what exactly it meant when we were baptized. It is a scriptural command that we should go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is part of the Christian disciple's life. 
Baptism is something we should be obedient in. We need to understand its significance. It isn't about getting wet. It's about identification with Jesus Christ. It's the fact that he died and he rose that is being proclaimed in our baptism. And that when we go into the water, we are accepting the fact that Jesus died for us and we are dying with him in identification. And as we come up from the water, we accept the fact that Jesus has risen again and we desire to walk in the newness of his life. So continuing to seek daily. This isn't something you just do at baptism. This is the life beyond. Continuing to walk in the newness of life that God has provided for you. Isn't that what's at the end of this journey of life? Death will come, the body will be destroyed, but our souls will return to God. And what is it we anticipate happens at that point? We will enter into the newness of life. We will enter into the presence of God forever. We will await the time if Christ has not returned when we are taken from this world. We will await the time of his return when we shall receive a renewed body and we shall walk even more fully in the newness of life. We shall behold the newness of the eternal life of God forever and ever and ever. And we shall walk in the newness of that. People think heaven and all that is to come will be boring in the light of the world. Nothing could be further from the truth. There will be no night and no day there. But everything will be new in the sense of being fresh and coming to us with a newness of life. For who can know the mind of God and the greatness of his being? Isn't that true of our lives today? The psalmist said it was. New every morning are your mercies. New, fresh. Your friend, you know the freshness of your life with God. Are you walking with him? Don't think. You can make sin the servant of God. Let God make you his servant.